Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Monetary policy is not done. That is the key takeaway from the April 12th Bank of Canada press conference following their decision to hold its key interest rate at 4.5%. This is the second consecutive pause for the Bank of Canada, and if you're in the camp that's hoping for or projecting a rate cut later this year, Governor Tiff Macklem swiftly squashed that idea, saying that it doesn't look like the most likely scenario. Joining us today to unpack what the latest Bank of Canada decision means for growth, housing, and the real economy is renowned economist Don Drummond. Don has held several senior roles at the Federal Department of Finance, where he was responsible for economic analysis, fiscal, and tax policies. He later served as Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at TD Bank, and is currently Fellow-in-Residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. Don speaks with host Pamela Ritchie today, and he is not surprised by the Bank of Canada's decision, since they're far from getting inflation down to 2%. However, he says he's pleasantly surprised they communicated that further hikes are a possibility in the future and put an end to the speculation that cuts could be coming in 2023. We also hear today from Don that globalization, including companies lowering costs by moving production overseas, allowed us to keep inflation low with strong growth in the past, but a lot of that has run its course for the moment. Don believes 1.5 to 1.7% is a reasonable, sustainable long-term growth rate. All of this and more on today's 30-minute podcast, which for context was recorded on April 13th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Welcome, Don. Great to see you again. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Very nice to see you. Well, welcome, everyone. So more to be done. Um, surprises to you in any shape or form there, Don? Only if you count as a pleasant surprise. Uh, I was quite adamant that if they were going to hold the policy rate fixed at the four and a half percent, that they give a clear warning that they may not be done um, at, a, at a minimum to leave, throw that door wide open to that possibility and put an end to the moment of this growing speculation that they were thinking of cutting the rates. Uh, as I read the numbers, they are so far from victory of getting inflation back to 2%, and the underlying inflation pressures remain quite steadfast. Uh, the March CPI labor force survey revealed for the second month in a row, wage costs are up more than 5%. How does that translate into 2% inflation? I thought that they needed to reflect a concern about that journey back to 2%, and they did it. So I don't know if I could say I'm surprised at that. I'm happy that they did that, that they didn't just say we're leaving it unchanged. They said, you know, don't think this is necessarily a done deal. We're not going to go again. So let's go into the idea of the drags, the lags, the monetary policy that works with a lag. I mean, it is working, we assume. This is much higher, obviously, than it was a year ago uh, on the interest rate front. I mean, what will this level of interest rates do with a lag? 
you know, the, the, unfortunately, due to the nature of lives, the answer is we don't know because it could easily take 12 to 18 months from a change in the interest rate until we see the change in real activity and then how it influences prices. A year or two from now, we'll dial back and we'll know the answer to that. But of course, that's too late. And that is why there's a bias in monetary policy to go too far. Because you raise interest rates, you raise interest rates, and you don't see the 2% inflation. So you raise them again. And then ultimately, you find out, well, once the lags kicked in, you went too far. To their credit, they acknowledge that possibility. And that's why they left the rate unchanged in their previous decision in March. And that's why they're holding it again. And yes, they have to be patient and we have to be patient. It may be high enough, but they're saying in this statement, but it may not be high enough as well. I mean, are we quibbling? Are we quibbling over a percent here? Is that what's being discussed? You know, maybe maybe another percent or is it? Yeah, I think probably it's unlikely it would need to go over five and a half. But the difference between four and a half and five and a half is still pretty big. Uh, I'd tell that to anybody who's got a super high mortgage as Many people who purchase over the last couple of years do have very high mortgages, and particularly those people that are on these variable rate mortgages in which they haven't triggered to the higher payments. Once they triggered that and you have to pay another percentage point, that, that would be a big deal. Uh, you know, the Bank of Canada, as, as everyone well knows, is, is just with the mandate of inflation, and therefore their tool is interest rates. They don't need to, in the way that the Fed does, uh, worry about the labor side of things. Uh, presumably that makes it easier, although everyone's struggling with this on both sides of the border. Well, whether it's written in their form of mandate, believe me, they do take consideration. There's absolutely no doubt, and to their credit, the Bank of Canada would like to return to 2% with absolutely the minimal damage to the economy and the middle of jobs. They're, they're not indifferent to that by any means whatsoever. And, and that's why they would be reluctant to, if they didn't care, Let's face it, they could put interest rates at 20% the way they were in their 1980s and just a scorched earth policy. And they're not doing that because they do want to minimize the cost. So they care deeply about that. But there's a limit to how long they're going to wait. And if we keep seeing those underlying fresher inflation pressures remain steadfast, I have, I have no doubt that they will go again. And maybe as you say, it, it's another 50 basis points, maybe in the most another 100 basis points. But that's a significant difference. Don, um, the discussion of globalization is everywhere, and and our our country is is in the middle of the discussion as much as any other country that exports and imports is. Um, the question of globalization, you know, shrinking. It's had its day. It's peaked. Um, that is a big piece of the inflation. Put that side of the story into you know relief for us. Well, I, I guess I flip it around the other side. We definitely had a long period of a disinflationary pressure from the globalization as corporations sought around the world for lower cost production sites and it put, you know, mainly China, but Vietnam, Malaysia, wh wherever it might be, even in the United States. And there's no accident that the auto production and auto parts ended up in the southern part of the United States because labor costs are lower in the southern part than in the north part. And you saw the exodus of the automobile industry out of Detroit, which has traditionally had been unionized, high paid and non-unionized in Tennessee. So the globalization wasn't not just about doing that, but that's sort of run its course for a moment. And you're seeing a lot of production being put back. I don't know if so much of that add inflationary pressures, but that pressure for disinflation has disappeared. And that was one of the reasons why 
and allowed the world to not only keep at low 2% inflation, but for much of the period actually be below that. And they don't have that benefit. And of course, the flip side we've got right now with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is we have some supply side shocks on, on the energy field and definitely in the agriculture. Hopefully, and, and, and of course, the price shocks are the least of the concerns of the people of Ukraine. But hopefully that that can settle down and we'll see that removal of that inflation pressure. Europe's kind of being more successful. One might have thought of muddling their way through the energy crisis that's been put on them on them. But it's definitely a source of inflation pressure at the moment. Yeah. And it's it's sort of two different stories there. Um, The services side of things, um, let's dig in there on, on the inflation that seems to be again, where, where everything struggles. I, I am interested in whether you think the good side of things is well and truly done. That goes to kind of the globalization story. But um, let's dig into the services a little bit and, and tell us you know, what you see and what's being discussed and maybe what isn't being discussed on the services side. But with services, you're basically talking labor, right? Because yeah. if you're manufacturing, you've got a lot of machinery equipment and on a trend basis, machinery equipment prices have tended to actually come down you have more of an opportunity for productivity and efficiency gains when you're producing widgets or whatever it is than you do in the service industry. Not that the service industry can't bring in efficiency gains as well, but you're mainly talking about labor costs. And we're seeing an absolutely stereotypical pattern when inflation goes up, wages lag. In part, it's because you have contracts. And if you're in the second year of a three-year contract, there's not much you can do for a while. So, So we saw wages fall way behind the pace of inflation and inflation surged in 2022. And now we're seeing a crossing of the lines. If we looked at the month-to-month inflation numbers, not the year-over-year measures, but the month-to-month, we've seen inflation come down a lot, excluding food and energy the last couple of months. It's running three and a half, but we're seeing the wage side firm. So we've seen now two consecutive months of the labor force survey where average wages are up over 5%. That's the inflationary source you're facing in the service industry because you have to hire people. We're going to have a very interesting dynamic in the public and the quasi-public sector. Ontario will be particularly interesting because the courts ruled as unconstitutional the three years of their 1%. So they got the two years of the 1%. Now they're going to mediation and probably arbitration in the third year. And they're not only asking for a higher increase in the third year, but they're asking for catch-up for the first two years. And we got the huge public union at the federal government probably going into a strike position, maybe coming in arbitration there. And think back when inflation took off in the 1970s and earlier periods, it typically got led by the quasi-public service. At that time, Air Canada and corporations like that who got some high-profile settlements that led to other high-profile settlements. So we got a lot of potential pressures coming on the wage size and including from the public sector. So when you say quasi, is that essentially anything that is regulated? That, that's uh, I, I mean by that, the, the, the not just the civil servants or um, universities, for example, the University of Toronto is one that's coming up to an arbitration decision. Uh, Ontario Power Generation is another one. Um, all these ones where they were subject to two years of the 1% increase, but the court has thrown open what's happened in the third year. And they're saying, we not only want a higher increase for the third year, but we want to make up for what we lost out by having 1% in the first two years. Let's go go now back to, I want to get into sort of the debt story overall and, and what this overall 
um, monetary policy means for it. But a, a couple of questions to, to crack on with here. So why are central banks so adamant about the 2% inflation rate, um, asking about whether that ultimately could be 3%? I mean, this is a big discussion globally, isn't it? Um, well, I think that's been put to bed. And, and of course, the arrangement struck with the Bank of Canada and the Government of Canada, which goes back to the early 1990s, comes up for review. And every year that question is open. And every year, and we're going back to 1990, every year the answer is 2% seems the right number. Uh, in a strict academic basis, why not go lower? And, of course, the answer to that is the lower you get, the more you risk deflation. And that Japan will tell us about that. That is very, very nasty because you end up with um, real interest rates that are positive. And so it's dangerous to go below that. But inflation is costly. It, it creates inefficiencies in economic activity. You do wasteful things to avoid having price increases. And it's very uneven in its effect. Uh, you may have a salary that's indexed or you may be in a pension that's indexed, but a lot of people aren't. And, and then you get the effects like we had in 2022, where a lot of people saw their real incomes going down because they're not indexed or the minimum they're not indexed with a lag. So there's a cost of inflation. When we did the work back in the Department of Finance in the late 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, leading to the first agreement with the Bank of Canada, we found that somewhere around the 1.5 to 2% inflation was a really the sweet spot. You didn't want to risk deflation by going lower than that, but the economic costs really mounted a lot where inflation ran about 2%. So I think that, you know, the Federal Reserve Board has been less clear of what they think the definitive of the number is, but you know from their actions, they liked it to be 1.5 to 2%. And they've always tightened when it seemed to be going higher and they've always eastened. So they've, they've kind of come to the same conclusion as here. And yes, everybody will say, well, you can't be indifferent to what's happening in employment. And, and I would say the answer to that is that the analysis just the best thing you can do for the economy is keep inflation low and steady. That will yeah. maximize employment outcomes. Okay, excellent. Another question coming in. So your, given your comments, Don, um, on rate hikes and that they still could well go higher, what would be your advice to someone having to renew their mortgage, um, fixed or variable? <laughs> well, you can never give a standard answer because you have to go with your own risk appetite and everybody has a different risk appetite. Um, there's a lot of people who won't sleep at night if they have a variable rate because they're always worried that they're going to get stung. And if that's the way you are, go for the fixed rate. And, and, and again, keep in mind the history. Bond yields are not, are not particularly high right now and hence mortgage rates aren't very high the one I worry about is those people are in that situation with the variable rates where the banks have just been changing the amortization period. And I hope everybody understands that's what's happening to them because they're probably saying, I'm still paying the same interest as I was when I took the variable rate at 1.8% or whatever it is. But the reality is, in most cases, you're not paying one cent of the of the outstanding uh, principle on, on that. And, and in some cases, it might even be increasing. And you're going to get a shock when you realize you owe more on your mortgage than you did when you first took it. Or when you come to re renew it, you realize that principle is up. So effectively, the variable rate hasn't looked quite as good as many as these people would say. 
But, you know, it's probably not a satisfactory answer. And everybody think it's just horrible and you're going to pay these really high costs. They're not particularly high by any historical standard other than what people have faced since 2008. That is the abnormality. Right. Okay. Great. Excellent answer. It, it applies. Okay. So let's go to this question. What happens to the Bank, Bank of Canada policy if the Fed raises their rate higher and um, essentially, we have a spread that it has to be contended with. I mean, there is always that lockstep question, isn't there? Yeah. Well, of course, in theory, it shouldn't matter, but theory never applies. And the direct relevance is everything else equal. The economist famous saying everything else is equal. If the Federal Reserve Board has interest rates higher than Canada, that would put downward pressure on the Canadian dollar, and that would be a source of inflation. So the Bank of Canada cannot be indifferent to it. And there's no great accident that we have not typically had very much of a gap between the rates of interest in the bank uh, the, in the United States and Canada. Our markets are highly connected, and when the Federal Reserve Board does something, Canada more or less gets swept with it. And the Bank of Canada may, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument, the Federal Reserve Board raises another hundred basis points. Pretty hard for the Bank of Canada to ignore that because that would lower the value of the Canadian dollar, and that would add to the inflation pressures here. Mind you, the Federal Reserve Board has another calculation that's not quite as important for the Bank of Canada, and that is the fragility of their financial sector. You know, we, we know about the high-profile failures like the Silicon Valley Bank, but unless you're an insider, you didn't know about that until it became front-page news. How many others are there like that? Um, we, we've, we've seen a couple that are in fragile situations and, you know, I, I really don't know what to make of the second piece of news. I was surprised to find out that the Federal Reserve Board had been monitoring Silicon Valley Bank daily hmm. because in 2008, the infinite wisdom of Congress made that you don't have to do stress tests if you're under 250 billion. So they didn't have a legal requirement. But it turns out we've now discovered the Federal Reserve Board is all over them. And that's kind of comforting. But they didn't seem to do anything. So what were they doing when they were monitoring day by day? They sat there and watched them go under. So it just makes me wonder how many other financial institutions are vulnerable and how much of a consideration is that to the Federal Reserve Board? Well, and, and is it absolutely not a consideration in Canada? I mean, I know we have the banks that we have and the system that we have, but I mean, can you sort of definitively say that is just not a risk here? No, and you might have thought that prior to 2008, because you were sitting here at the beginning, the unraveling of the financial sector in the United States in 2008, you could have said that's no big news for Canada, because we didn't really have the subprime mortgages, we didn't have the meltdown in the housing market, we had much better capitalized banks, we had banks that had much more diversified loan and deposit portfolios, but you know what? Our recession at the end was only slightly less severe than the Americans. It was different that it didn't take down our housing sector, but we had just under a 4% peak to trough output decline, and they just had over 4%. And banks for about a year had a great deal of difficulty getting funding. And in fact, they ultimately had to get an arrangement to borrow through the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. So the circumstances are different, and the difficulties with U.S. banks are quite specific even to those U.S. banks, not the financial sector in general, and we don't have that problem. But I think, you know, once we've had that 2008 lecture, we lesson, we need to worry about it. Uh, but again, I will say to the credit of the Canadian financial institutions, they remain pretty well diversified. They have high levels of capital, typically more than the regulator requires them. 
and the regulator is on them every single day watching them and they've asked for additional capital. And so, you know, we, we shouldn't have a problem, but you might have said that in 2008 as well. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about the story of how you got your PhD and ultimately the type of work that's being done right now on, on monetary policy, you know, at really, really high levels and, and sort of pick apart some of the pieces of the monetary um, policy meetings at, at institutes like you're a part of, but also more broadly in, in perhaps other centers of research and academia. Well, first of all, in full disclosure, I got my PhDs uh, the easy way. No oral exams, no courses, no, I got honorary. I have, I have two honorary PhDs. I don't have a real one. Uh, I, <laughs> I have a, a bachelor's in economics from the University of Victoria and I have a master's from Queens. And early on in my exposure to economics, and, and you're always influenced by particular mentors. And I, I had one who was a giant in my life. He was the head of economics at the University of Victoria. Uh, he was he was exactly if you had to build a portrayal of somebody you want to be an educator and an academic leader you would you would build his profile super high energy absolutely fascinated with what went on in the real world he would come into the class with a newspaper clipping of something and say here's how you can understand that in supply and demand i think he created the first course on environmental economics in canada Hard not to get inspired by by somebody. Leonard Lauderdale was uh, the gentleman's name. Uh, so I always had that interest in public policy and making people's lives interested. When I graduated from Queens, I was interested in two jobs, the Bank of Canada and Finance, and I was very fortunate I had offers from both. Uh, I'm sure I would have had a great career at the Bank of Canada. I chose finance just so it was a broader breadth of activity. They wanted me to work on a, a financial uh, model at the bank, and that's probably all I would have done in the first couple of years. So I think I made the right decision, but I'm still fascinated with monetary policy. But I have a very simple take on monetary policy. 95% of the time, you should set interest rates at the so-called neutral rate and put your feet up on the desk, go to sleep if you want, do nothing. <laughs> I don't like it when they become activists over long periods of time. And I think we desperately need to study this period from 2008 to 2022, this extended period of monetary policy, because I think no good came out of it. You're, I mean, you're talking about QE. Are you talking about QE? No, just the interest rate interest setting and QE, the, the whole yep. thing, but mainly the, the interest rate saving. You know, for most of that period, we have considered a so-called neutral rate of interest, one that's consistent with 2% inflation. For a while, it was considered around 3%, more recently, 2 to 3%. But through all that whole period, they had the interest rate below the neutral setting. So, And, and the comeback to that was for many of that period, inflation was a bit above 2%. And I said, well, they should be look at broader. You know, if the economy is performing perfectly well and inflation is at 1.5%, don't, don't sweat it. <laughs> like sweat it if inflation is above the target, but don't sweat it if inflation is below the target. I don't like, I think monetary policy is designed they get in quickly and strongly and get back out quickly. And okay. and I hope that if and when we do get the economy back on an even keel at 2% inflation, they just put their feet back up on the desk. <laughs> Don't do anything. Keep the interest rate. And, you know, it's funny, the history of this so-called neutral interest rate, which is a key portion. I think I came up with that concept when I was at TD Bank. And I presented that to the governing council of the Bank of Canada, and they kind of essentially said they were going to write to the two universities that had given me degrees and have them recall it. 
because it <laughs> made no sense whatsoever because it was never a fixed number, which I recognize. Uh, imagine my surprise within about two years of coming up with a concept and they, they now lead almost all of their policy statements with here's the interest rates relative to the neutral uh, setting. I like it as a concept and I recognize it can change over time and it has come down over time. And, you know, it, this may seem like a bit of a tangent, but I don't think there's an element of which the credibility the central banks has established is undermining the transition to 2% inflation. And why are long-term bond yields at 3%? It is because bond traders believe the central banks will be successful in reigning in inflation. But by believing that, they keep long-term bond yields low and hence don't extract the cost of the, to the economy that would drive inflation down. I, you know, it's fascinating. It's obviously something that needs more study and more work. It also sounds like you need a much larger footnote uh, of your name in some of the policy that's being written right now. So do you think that the Bank of Canada will implement a digital currency anytime soon? No, I don't think so. I think there's too much nervousness about that. That will come. And uh, if we haven't noticed already, I, I think they're 99.9% uh, busy <laughs> trying to get inflation down to 2%. And I, I have no doubt that within their uh, people that work in the organization, they can allocate people's attention to that. But believe me, the attention of the governing council is very worried. How do they bring inflation back to 2%? And I reiterate, with minimal damage to the economy. Right. I want. I wanted to um, ask about the federal budget. So the 2023 federal budget, the impact, What what is it on growth and the Canadian dollar, in your opinion? Well, you know, the, the rhetoric in the federal budget is they've implemented this restraint. That is completely bogus. Uh, right. That is right. A, a piece of fiction they have created themselves. I, I, I have... Um, uh, uh, it was a note in the National Post, but we have the chart that goes with it as an intelligent monitor and the CD Howe, and it plots the operating expenses of the federal government in the last three budgets. And every budget, they say they're cutting operating expenses, but what they did in between budgets is they raised the projection. <laughs> so they raised the projection, and then they cut from the higher projection. The operating expenses that are projected now are billions and billions higher than they projected. And they keep saying that now that COVID settled down to some degree, that we should bring operating expenses back to the pre-COVID. But they're not. They're up by billions of dollars. And in fact, the growth rate in the last budget from a base of 2019 is 3.6%. That's not restraint. And their definition of restraint is, believe us, we wanted to spend a lot and we didn't spend as much as we wanted. Well, that's not restraint. So it, it's not the proliferate spending that they had in 2021, 2022, but there's a net injection of fiscal stimulus in this last budget. So they're, they are not rolling in the same direction as the Bank of Canada. They're making the Bank of Canada's job harder. Right. You know, this, okay. this comes Amazing. back to the flip side of that in 2011 and 2012, where the federal government massively moved to a position of fiscal restraint because they didn't like the deficit and debt numbers where the Bank of Canada was trying to close the output gap. So we've now got a second high profile example where the monetary and fiscal authorities are not working in arm. Right. I know it's it's uh, as you say, that, that makes the job harder ultimately on the monetary side of things. So here's a question for you, given the global picture. What are your thoughts on Types, maybe data to watch regarding global stock markets in the second half of 2023? Or what, what would you think that investors want to keep a close eye on for the second half? You know, 
Yeah, the question was global, but I'll use the example of Canada because we just have the numbers put out by the, the Bank of Canada on their growth uh, expectations. So, you know, 1.4% this year, 1.3% next year. Now, there's a very interesting context to that. I bet everybody thinks that those are super low numbers. But the sustainable long-run growth rate of the economy is probably 1.5 to 1.7%. Now, we're used low. to... Yeah, we're used to higher numbers, but we're used to a period where the labor force was growing faster than it's growing right now with the with the seniors population increasing in their lower labor force participation rate. So those are not particularly low numbers. And we're used to the global economy growing over 4%, but aging is happening everywhere, in many places more severely than Canada. So I'm looking for a growth slowdown, but not an outright recession. And keep in mind, 1.4 and 1.3% growth rate in Canada, or let's say 25 to 3% in the global economy, while everybody's thinking that weak, that's not putting a lot of downward pressure on prices. So that's when I'm worried. Can we walk that fine line where we slow growth enough to get rid of this inflation bubble, but not enough to really put a lot of people out of work? John, it sounds it's it sounds like a, a tightrope, but it's obviously one we're going to walk. What do you, watch? What are you going to do uh, with thirty degree temperatures in Ontario right now today? Well, first of all, I'm in Arizona, and I'm going to be playing pickleball later, and it's a little bit <laughs> a little bit hot for that. But uh, but I'll, I'll suffer. It's a it's a hardship that I'm I'm prepared awful. to take. Uh, we'll be mm-hmm. back in Ontario shortly. Uh, time to cut the grass and that that kind of stuff. Yeah, my we'll eyes, are, it warm on, here my eyes are on the inflation numbers, and I really wish we would stop our almost unique focus on the year-over-year numbers. We had very high inflation in February, March, and April of last year. Those numbers are going to be dropping out. They're boosting up the year-over-year numbers. We should look look at the month-to-month. And by the way, when Statistics Canada reports the monthly inflation, shockingly, they report the seasonally unadjusted number. We should look at the seasonally adjusted month to month, the last three months, look at the core measures. They're down kind of in the three and a half percent range. So good news, bad news. It's a lot lower than the headline numbers that we're getting hammered with, but it's still way above two percent. But that's what I'm we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Okay, so we're gonna keep an eye on month over month, obviously. That's that's the ticket, and obviously the seasonally adjusted. Okay. Season. Well, we are moving into a new season here. Thank you for joining us. Don Drummond, great to see you again. Okay, thanks, bye. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.